In his little book called Beginning to Pray, Anthony Bloom writes about a time during the Nazi occupation of Paris when he was nearly arrested by the authorities. During the German occupation of France, he writes, I was in the resistance movement, and coming down into the underground, I was caught by the police. What took place at that moment was this. I had a past, I had a future, and I was moving out of one into the other by walking briskly down those steps. At a certain moment, someone put a hand on my shoulder and said, Stop. Give me your papers. At that moment, I realized I had no past because the real past I had was the thing for which I should be shocked. I found myself standing there like the lizard who had been caught by the tail and had run away, leaving the tail somewhere behind so that the lizard ended where the tail had been. Something kind of like this happens in today's passage. Paul had been walking briskly from his past into a future he was envisioning for himself and for other people when God gently put a hand on his shoulder and took him from a past and a future he thought he understood into a previously unimaginable new life grounded in Christ. And this break for Paul is decisive. It's a matter of life and death. And having broken from his previous identity, his former identity, Paul does not walk into the future. He runs into the future that God has in store. But before he starts all that running, Paul first has to let a few things go. At the opening of today's passage, you probably noticed it, Paul goes out of his way to remind the listeners, to remind the readers, to remind us of his status and his achievements. Specifically within the Jewish tradition, this is relevant because in the ancient Mediterranean world, one's social status, one's place was determined by one's honor and privilege. And by all the significant markers of his day, Paul had both. He had honor and he had privilege. In short, Paul wants the readers to know that he has a lot to lose by following Christ. And as a general rule, we have a lot to lose, too. When Ronnie Kitchen was released from prison after serving 20 years for a sentence, his mother did not recognize her only son. But it wasn't because she had lost her vision or that Ronnie's face had been altered while in prison. She didn't recognize her son because while he was in jail, she began to suffer from dementia. Whenever Ronnie sat with his mother now after being out of prison, he would typically ask her, why are you staring at me? And she would often say, because I'm trying to figure out who you are. At this, Ronnie would often go into the bathroom or the kitchen to cry so his mother wouldn't see him crying. She wouldn't know why he was crying. It would only make her more confused and upset. When he would come out of the bathroom or the kitchen, he would sit back down, and she would often say, guess what? My baby is coming home. He would ask, who are you talking about? And she would look him in the eye and answer, Ronnie is coming home. 
The worst part of the story is that Ronnie was released from prison after 20 years, not because he had served his sentence. He was released from prison because he was proved to be innocent of the crime he was committed for, convicted of. He was innocent and spent 21 years locked behind prison bars. Ronnie eventually sued the city of Chicago for the mistake, which meant Ronnie had to put a price tag on all that he had lost. When the lawyers asked him how much he wanted to sue for, Ronnie just pulled a number out of thin air. He ended up settling for about 10% of that number, which was enough to buy a nice house and a nice car and to start an auto accessories business that he still runs today. But was all that enough to make up for what he suffered, to make up for what he had lost? Someone asked Ronnie that question recently, and he laughed bitterly in their face. $10 million, $100 million, a $1 billion, they asked. Would that be enough? Still not enough, Ronnie said. You can't give me my mother back. You can't give me my mother. As people at the top of the social pyramid... All of us are at the top of the social pyramid. We have a lot to lose by following Jesus Christ. We have status, we have power, and we have privilege. Like Paul, we have played the game and we have played it fairly well, or we have inherited things that have pushed us and helped us find our way to the top. All of us here have a lot to lose like Paul did, by choosing to follow Christ. But no matter what we have to lose, the truth is we have so much more to gain. Maybe it's just me, but the events of this past week challenged my hopeful view of the world at a deep and profound level. At some point during this week, I broke. Three more trials involving police shootings of African Americans and not one resulted in a break of the pattern of black men and women suffering at the hands of our criminal justice system. Our political leaders continue to sow division and dysfunction while those who struggle daily with addiction and depression and economic insecurity continue to suffer and wait for their government to act on their behalf. And as violence spreads, you can't turn the news on without seeing reports of a bomb or a fire or a war. It seems that humanity continues to respond to violence with more violence, accepting a false narrative, a false premise that it's okay to spend the majority of our precious resources of time and money and energy on building up our military might. As my anger and frankly, my despair boiled up at the futility of it all, futility of it all. In the car one day, in a frustrating moment, when I was just broken, Paul's words, thankfully, came back to me. And I think for a moment I began to realize what Paul was getting at when he said, Yet whatever gains I had, these I have come to regard as loss, as rubbish, as trash. Because of Christ. More than that, I regard everything as loss because of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things 
and I regard them as rubbish, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but one that comes through faith in Christ. Earlier this month, David Eubank got a call to rescue some wounded civilians in the besieged city of Mosul. If you've watched the news, Mosul might be the most hellish place right now on earth. He rescued, got this call to rescue people who were being pinned down, civilians, children, families who were being pinned down and used as human shields by members of ISIS. A 10-year veteran of the U.S. Army Special Forces who is now working as an aid worker with the group he founded himself, a group that specializes in this work of rescuing civilians from war zones. David has gotten calls like this before in Iraq, in Afghanistan, in Burma. This is what David does. And by all accounts, if you listen to his story, PRI had a great piece on him this week. David Eubank is a hero. But there is something more about his story that makes David Eubank something more than just a hero. He does all this dangerous work with his wife and his three kids, 16, 14, and 11. Instead of leaving his family back home in the States where they'd be safe, David brings them with him, finds a place for them to live where other families and children who are suffering in that area are living. Currently, typically it's about a mile or two from where the battle is being fought. Some, many, call David Eubank crazy, even irresponsible for putting his kids in harm's way. But David and his wife and at least one of his kids who I heard on the radio believe, deeply believe, that they are living out Christ's claim and call on their life. As Christians, they believe they are doing what God wants them to do. Now, when David and his wife Karen first got pregnant, I was relieved to hear they had a conversation about this choice. They discussed if they were going to keep going into and living in the most dangerous places in the world with their kids in tow, because they talked about if their children died, how could they live with themselves or, even more importantly, with one another? But as they talked and prayed about the decision they realized they didn't want to be led. They didn't want to be led in their life by dangers or comforts or the possibility of evil. They wanted to be led in their life by opportunities. And there was no better way in their mind that they could raise their kids in the ways of the faith. I don't want my kids to die, David said in a recent interview from Mosul where you could hear gunshots in the background. I don't want my kids to die. We try to protect them, but we don't want to protect them from other people's needs. We don't want to insulate them from the real situations of the world. We don't want to inhibit what we feel God can do in their lives. Now, I do not want all of you to run off from here to go to Mosul with your kids. This is an extreme example meant to make a point. But I tell this story of a person of faith responding to their sense of God's call, God's claim on their lives, because it is my firm conviction and belief that God has created each and every one of us to do something real, something lasting, something that will take us to the place where our greatest longing and the world's greatest need converge and meet. But to get to that place where 
our sense of call and the world's sense of need converge, to get to that place, we have to redirect our passions and energies away from what we can accomplish and build and acquire to what we believe God can do in and through us. If the news of the day teaches us anything, it's that this game of striving and longing and searching for privilege and power and security and safety and status and certainty is a zero-sum game that nobody ever wins, which is why I think Christ's invitation to a new way of living, a break from the past, something new, is so transformative but also so disruptive. We, we live trying to hold on to both the past, the way we used to live, and to the future, the way God calls us to live. We want to hold on to both, but you can't. You have to let go of one to hold on to the other. Fortunately, when we seek to know Christ and to deeply understand his particular claim on our life, in time we discover, slowly but surely, that those things we spent so much time and energy on are often the very things that keep us from living the life that God calls us to, a life that is connected and powerful and real. Imprisoned with little to no hope of release, separated from his friends by distance and time, unable to see when his condition might end, Paul, it seems, is not even remotely daunted by his situation. Instead of living in fear or grieving all he has lost, Paul strives to embrace this freedom that few of us can imagine, let alone grasp. So how does Paul do it? How can someone be so hopeful when they have nothing? Well, perhaps Paul is so hopeful because Paul knows what he does have cannot be taken away. Paul believes that he has been claimed by God, that his life is caught up in some way in the life of Christ, and that he has been called by the same God who created the universe from nothing and who raises the dead to new life. Paul knows what he has that cannot be taken away. And he's also seen the end of the story so he can work and struggle and plan and laugh and eat and endure all the present challenges he faces with courage and, most importantly, with hope. Paul, of course, is not the only person of faith to ever experience the confidence that comes from knowing what you have and seeing where you're going. You may recall the words of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. on the eve of his assassination like anybody, he wrote, I would like to live a long life. Longevity has its place, but I'm not concerned about that now. I just want to do God's will. And he's allowed me to go up to that mountain, and I've looked over, and I've seen the promised land. I may not get there with you, but I want you to know tonight that we, as a people, will get to the promised land. And I'm so happy tonight. I'm not worried about anything I'm not fearing any man. Mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. Here is the good news in a nutshell that I believe can give us, start to give us the courage, the courage we're going to need to redirect our passions and energies from what we can do to what God can do in and through us. The good news is this, that courage displayed by Paul in that prison cell 
by David Eubank and his wife and children, by Ronnie and by Dr. King, that's a courage that's accessible to all of us right here, right now. And it's accessible to us right here and right now, regardless of our status or privilege or position, because it's a courage born of faith in the God who is at work in us and in the world. It's not a hope grounded in what we can do or acquire or obtain or succeed at. It's a new hope grounded in what Christ has done, is doing, and one day will do. It's a hope grounded in a God who loves us and is with us every step of the way. Amen.